Welcome to episode four of the Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine, a production of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. Adria Adebani interviews Drs. Evie Marcolini and Joelle Borhart on their journeys through emergency medicine. This is another edition of the Women in Emergency Medicine podcast for the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. We're here in Vegas in 2019, and I'm interviewing the lovely Drs. Evie Marcolini and Joelle Borhart. They are both co-chairs of the AEM Scientific Assembly. For the past two years, they've been co-chairs of the Scientific Assembly. Dr. Marcolini is on the board of directors for the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Um, She's also an assistant professor in emergency medicine and critical care at the University of Vermont College of Medicine. She completed a fellowship in surgical critical care at Shock Trauma in Baltimore. Dr. Joelle Bohart, who we also have here with us today, is an associate program director at the Georgetown University Emergency Medicine Residency Program. She's a former AAEM open mic winner. She's been featured on MRAP and has received the Speaker of the Year Award from her residents four times, which is amazing. Um, That must be hard to do. So we were talking earlier about how the two of you have been co-chairs of the AAEM Scientific Assembly for the past two years. So tell me a little bit about what that's been like for the two of you jointly collaborating. Well, for me, it's been a great experience, uh, not just being able to plan the conference and get more involved in AAEM, but also getting to work so closely with Evie. She's been an amazing mentor and role model and friend to me. I've learned a lot from working alongside her, and I've learned a lot from our subcommittee members um, and just really enjoyed the process of getting more involved in AAEM. I think it's been a great experience. Working with Joelle has been fun, and the fact that we're both women, which is what we're talking about on this podcast, is also interesting because last year, when we first started working together on this, we decided to dedicate the scientific assembly to a focus, and the focus was diversity. And part of that was because we had gotten response from the membership that they wanted more diversity in the talks, in the speakers, in, in how we address the education for the assembly. And I don't know if that worked well because we're both women, but it's been a lot of fun to try to encourage and mentor and bring people of diversity into the scientific assembly, whether it's women or people who are diverse because of ethnicity or religion or any other issue like community versus academic that makes them diverse, it really brought to the fore some issues that we hadn't really thought so deeply about before, and it made us really look at what we were doing in designing the conference. Can either one of you tell me a little bit about what you think drove you to become a leader in emergency medicine? What are some of the reasons that you chose to go into academic medicine, you chose to help chair the conference, 
that you stayed in academic emergency medicine and um, or reasons that you went into fellowship training. What do you think it is that was the reason that you didn't just finish your residency training in emergency medicine and cut out and go practice community emergency medicine? For me, an academic career is the most rewarding career I can imagine as an emergency physician. I enjoy patients. I enjoy patient care and taking care of patients, of course. But for me, the greatest joy on a shift is working with a learner, whether that's a medical student or a resident. Uh, I love the whole process. I love bedside teaching. I love giving lectures. I love writing. I love developing relationships with the residents and the medical students that last over time and watching them grow. So I, I really couldn't imagine any other career than an academic one. That's an interesting question, and as, as you're asking it, I'm, I'm thinking about, well, why did I do this? And I believe that academic medicine just seemed natural. When I got into medical school, I didn't think about how I would progress. I didn't think about what ultimately my career would look like. But growing up in the academic system, it just made sense. It's what we did. It's with the people that we looked up to. It looked exciting. It felt exciting, and that's what we did. But one of the things that I believe has had a large effect on what I've done as a leader is people who have said to me, hey, why don't you do this? And I think of becoming the chair of the critical care section of ASAP. I wouldn't have ever thought to do that except a good friend of mine, Lillian Emlett, another woman in emergency medicine, called me up and said, why don't you run for this? And I ran for it and I won, and it really made a big difference in what I do with critical care and emergency medicine. Equally important here at AAEM, I never thought to run for the board of directors, but Dr. David Farsi and Dr. Lisa Moreno-Walton both said to me, hey, why don't you run for the board of directors? I never pictured myself as somebody who would do that or a leader. And I think that what we do as women is we want to make sure that we are qualified, if not overqualified, to take on a leadership position. And we don't recognize in ourselves that we do have the qualifications to do something like that. So both of those examples are examples of how somebody suggested to me something that they saw in me that I never saw in myself. But I'm really glad that I did both of them because it's been fun, it's been a learning experience, and it's, it's helped me progress in my career. And I like to turn that around and look for younger women or people who are diverse or men. It doesn't really matter. Like to, I like to really find people who would be good leaders or good at doing something that they might not see themselves and try to suggest that to them and help them achieve that goal that they never even knew they had. Did you always see yourself as going into medicine when you were younger? Was this a straight shot to medical school, or did you ever want to do something else? And if you did profess an interest in science when you were younger, did anyone ever try and dissuade you from that, tell you that it was un unladylike? Well, I did think about it when I went into college and abandoned it pretty quickly. And I remember abandoning it because I looked around at the people who were pre-med in my undergrad and thought, these are a bunch of really cutthroat, competitive people. I don't want to be like that, and I don't want to be surrounded by them. So I left it, and I never returned to it until, I don't know, 
20 years later at least. And yes, I had thought about it, but I didn't think I could do it. And then when I came back to it, I came back to it slowly, one step at a time by getting some prerequisites and taking the MCAT and, and you know doing the steps that we all know you have to take. Really curious if anyone ever tried to dissuade you. They don't ever say, no, you can't do that. Why don't you go to nursing school? Or why don't you, you know, I don't know why you're going to spend so much time doing that. It takes a long time. It's too much work. Did everyone, anyone ever try and turn you away or just flat out not support you? Yes, as a matter of fact, they did. I remember meeting a physician who was the father of a neighbor of mine who said, why are you going to do that? Aren't you going to have children? And I knew another physician who said to me, you're too old to do that. Why would you want to do that? And uh, there were many people. There was a, a, a director of nursing that I worked with and said, why would, why would you want to be a physician? Why don't you be a nurse? There's a lot more opportunity for flexibility and growth in that field. And so, yes, many people did say, why are you considering doing this? And I, I love it. I laugh. And, and when I think about that, because I think I did it because I wanted to do it. And if I had listened to people who said, you shouldn't do this, I don't know what I'd be doing now. Probably still be a paramedic. What about you, Dr. Borhart? Any experiences like that where people tried to turn you off, dissuade you from going to medical school? I had almost the opposite experience. I didn't plan on being a doctor when I was growing up. There were no doctors in my family. I went to college undecided as far as a major and really was pretty clueless about what I wanted for a future. Um, and I got a, a job just for money as a patient care technician at one of the community hospitals in Ames, Iowa, where I went to college. And I really enjoyed that job. And I was working alongside nurses, very closely with nurses. And I thought, well, I'll going to be a nurse. I'll go to nursing school. Uh, but Iowa State, where I went to college, didn't have a nursing school, and I didn't want to transfer. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go to PA school after I get an undergraduate degree here. Um, and so I was sharing that plan, actually, with a, a surgeon who worked. I worked on a med surge floor. And he actually said, well, you should think about going to medical school. And I thought, no, you know, I don't think I can. And he really encouraged me and pushed me, actually, to just take the MCAT and see what happened. And, and it went from there. But it really wasn't a, a plan I had set out when I went to college. And I received a lot of urging and prompting, kind of like what Evie was talking about earlier, people recognizing in you things that you don't see in yourself and encouraging you. I'm wondering if either one of you would classify yourselves as extremely stubborn. I've noticed that there are some female emergency medicine physicians who have gotten where they are, mostly because someone told them that they couldn't do it. And their response was, I can do it because you don't think I can, and therefore I will. Do you guys ever feel like your stubbornness has been one of the traits that's gotten you where you are? When I was a resident in emergency medicine in my second year, I discovered that I had a real love for critical care because when I was working in the ICU, I just enjoyed it so much and I loved it and I developed this passion for it. But I didn't really understand the landscape of critical care fellowships and at that time, critical care fellowships for emergency physicians was, was a thing you could do, but you wouldn't be able to sit for board certification, et cetera. And so the chair of surgery at my program who's a man, came up to me and put this little piece of paper in my hand and said, call this man. And I said, okay, who am I calling and why am I calling him? And he said, 
you're going to call Tom Scalia and you're going to go down to shock trauma and do a month long rotation because I think you're really going to enjoy it, which I did. And I went down there and they asked me if I wanted to do a fellowship and I did. And in the process of emergency medicine residency, when I started considering the possibility of doing a critical care fellowship, everybody said, you shouldn't do this. It's a bad idea. You're going to waste a year of your life. You're going to lose that attending income that you could have. You're never going to get a job doing it. You will not ever be able to use it. There was only one person who said, you should do it. If you like it, just do it. It's a year. It doesn't matter. And that was my program director. I don't know that I needed his approval, but I distinctly remember he was the only person who said you should do it because there were a lot of doubts at the time. It wasn't really the thing to do and not that many emergency physicians were doing this. So I give him credit again for, for suggesting to me, yeah, you can do this. And I did it and I never looked back. And everything that the naysayers had said has been disproven. And I'm very grateful for the one person who said you should do it. But I think in answering your question, I still would have done it because I had this passion for it and maybe I am stubborn. The example that comes to mind for me is I I knew early on in residency that I wanted an academic career. And so I was very much working towards that as I went through residency. And then uh, when it came time to be a third year resident, uh, they had, you know, chief selection and I was not selected as a chief resident, which to me at the time was sad because I wanted to be a chief resident, but mostly it was scary because I really thought that that might be the end of any academic career. Certainly you have to be able to be a chief resident if you're ever going to become a program director, which was my goal and is my goal. Um, and as I was kind of processing this setback, a lot of uh, my you know, friends and, and faculty members said, well, you, d- you don't want an academic career anyway. It's going to take up too much time. Uh, how can you balance a family eventually? And so I, there, there was that little bit of resistance, but I don't know if it's stubbornness that, that kept me going or just I still liked it. <laughs> and I still felt, you know, passionate about education. And so I, you know, I've kind of plodded along and continued on in an academic career. But, you know, it's still something that probably is my biggest professional insecurity that I wasn't chief resident. But I think actually that, it, <laughs> that it's, it's helped me become a better leader and educator and a role model in some ways, because the majority of us won't be chief residents, right? And so now I can, you know, sit with a, a, a resident and, you know, genuinely tell them, you know, it's, you can still have an academic career, you can still have all these things, and the setback isn't as, as big as it feels at the time. Something you talked about a little bit off mic beforehand is, do you feel that, just in the time since you entered residency training, that with regards to gender bias, that the field of medicine has actually changed for the better, just in the time that you've been in practice? I would say yes for me and in the group that I work with. I've been practicing as an attending for almost 10 years now. And I think, especially in the last few years, at least within our group, there's been a real recognition of gender bias and attention is being drawn to the the issue. And there's been a real push to include more women in leadership positions within our group. Also, I've noticed a kind of normalization of of family life over the last few years as well. I have two children. I have a two and a half year old son and I have a three month old daughter. And my first maternity leave, I felt a lot of anxiety about taking a three month leave and stepping away from the team. I worried that I'd be replaced or not missed. And 
and then after that, two of my male counterparts actually took three-month paternity leaves, which I don't think would have happened 10 or 15 years ago. And that gave me a lot more confidence going into my second maternity leave. It felt much more normal to step back from the, the work and the team for a, a short period. And so I, I appreciated that. And I think that's a change just within the last few years. I would agree. I think that we can't ignore the fact that the trend is changing. We are paying a lot more attention to diversity. We're paying a lot more attention to gender bias, and we're talking a lot more about it. And you can't talk about it, acknowledge it, and see it without having change. And having said that, I think change is slow. There are still a lot of things going on that have not changed yet that we still need to work on. I applaud the people who take bold steps in bringing things up at risk of career, job, reputation, and and we stand on their shoulders. And I think that we need to continue to acknowledge this issue of gender bias and how we are treated in the workplace, including how we're paid. I think inequality in how we're paid is one of those things that probably is a bigger issue than we even realize because we don't typically ask people how much they get paid. And so we really don't know how much we're being underpaid. It's a big mystery. It's a big black box. And that's one of the areas that I think we need to address and start asking questions about it. But it's going to be slow, slow progress, but any progress forward I think will be good. One of the things that I always find interesting for successful people, including successful emergency medicine female physicians, is how do you keep your life sane? How do you keep yourself grounded? What do you do to make your life work? Well, for me right now, it feels very tenuous <laughs> with a, a new baby at home and a, a two and a half year old. But a change I made about a year ago to better balance family life is I switched to doing only night shifts. So I'm a nocturnist now, and that has been a really positive change for our family. Uh, you're home more at the times that count for bedtime and bath time and in the mornings to get the the kids ready. Um, So that was probably the biggest change that I made to keep things sane. But also just personally, um, exercise. I'm a runner. I try to run at least, you know, 20 or 25 miles a week. Well, I feel like an imposter answering this question at all because I'm not grounded and I'm not balanced and, (laughs) and, and I struggle with this. And I think we all struggle with it, men and women equally. But the two things in my life that are really important for balance are, number one is my husband. And I have made changes in the past few years that have said, I'm putting my husband first over my career. And that is a, that's a big deal. If you are moving in the world of academic medicine to say, I'm not going to do this because I'm going to spend more time with my family, it's a lot easier said than done. And if you asked him, I think he would say, we have a long way to go. The other thing is I also run, and that is the one thing. People say, how can you run? Aren't you exhausted from what you're doing? I get more energy just by, by going for a run and unplugging from what I'm doing than I would if I just plowed right through and continued to get the work done that I have to do. It's so important to have exercise in your life and 
it's physically, emotionally, and spiritually helps me just to, to log the miles and uh, take me away from all the things that I could be worried about and those lists of things to do that I have. And I say lists because it's never just one list. Do you have any specific advice for female physicians early on in their career? I think the most important thing as an early career physician is look around you, see who the people around you are who inspire you and who you think are doing things that, that resonate with you. Seek them out, talk to them, and find mentors. And one of my mentors said to me, you don't have one mentor. You're going to have a lot of different mentors. You have different mentors for different things. So find mentors, talk with them, ask them how they got to where they are, and if they can give you advice on what they think you should be thinking about or doing. And um, that's the best thing. And for women who are further on in their career, Look around and find people who you think would be helped by giving them an opportunity to do something. If you've gotten to a point in your career where you've published a paper or you've led a committee or a section or you've been involved in something, you have experience that's going to help somebody that's earlier in their career to help them figure out how they can do something like that. And sometimes all they need is one experience of taking a leadership position no matter how small it is to get them to understand what it's like to lead something and and it will push them and it will allow them to develop their careers in a way that they may not have thought about so if you're earlier in your career look for a mentor if you're later in your career look for somebody to mentor i would say my one piece of advice would be to recognize imposter syndrome that it exists and that you probably have it, and that you can overcome it. And imposter syndrome, it affects all professionals, uh, but I think more women feel imposter-like feelings compared to men. And both Evie and I have benefited in our careers from people giving us a push or people you know, nominating us for something or, or drawing us into an opportunity, but you don't have to wait for that. And recognizing that you are qualified, that you are able, that you'll do an excellent job, that it's okay to nominate yourself for something, it's okay to put your name out there to give a talk or to write a paper or to chair a committee. You don't have to wait for someone to, to draw you in. And my last question, which I may or may not get an answer to, so, but it's my most favorite question. So did you ever do anything in high school that either got you into trouble or could have gotten you into trouble and you didn't get caught because you were so smart that you didn't get caught? Or middle school? Or grammar school? Nothing. You never did anything bad. And, well, or got <laughs> caught. I mean, you know, if you have a couple of felony convictions on your record that <laughs> we don't, the academy doesn't know about, feel free to share. But... Um, anything you ever did, you know, doctors are usually pretty clean cut people are usually very honest, very responsible, very coloring inside the lines. Not always, but for the most part, that's how we got where we are. We were straight A students. We were, you know, captain of the soccer team, whatever it is that you were that got you to where you are today. Usually it doesn't come along with, you know, a string of things in your past <laughs> that are horribly embarrassing, <laughs> but usually somebody has, people usually have a story about something that they did when they were younger that perhaps was not the most straight-laced thing they've ever done. 
I have one. Yeah. So when I was in high school, I was a lifeguard. And uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was uh, one of the head lifeguards. So one of my responsibilities was the end of the day was closing the pool and and locking it down and uh, shutting everything down for the night. And um, one night, instead of closing down the pool, I invited three or four friends to come into the the pool. And we swam in the pool and ate the concessions and (laughs) and just locked it up and never got caught. That's a pretty tame one, but I don't know. <laughs> it's as good as it gets for doctors. <laughs> I've always been a rule follower. and like. <laughs> well, I can't really think of an example that's appropriate to talk about, so I'm going to pass on this question. I think that's fair. This is being recorded. So, all right, thank you so much. A really big thanks to Dr. Marcolini and Dr. Borhart for sitting with me today and giving me a little bit of their perspectives on being a female ER doctor. I really appreciate everything that you told us today. Well, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, check out other podcasts produced by AAEM and find all episodes of Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine under the Resources tab and then Publications. Join us again next episode for a new journey through emergency medicine.